Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 13, if you would. Nehemiah chapter 13. As we think about, you know, tomorrow and Halloween, it is a huge deal here in America. It's uh, probably the second uh, most celebrated holiday as far as like uh, what's spent and the decorations that are put up and, and all of that. Uh, so you think even it's, it's second only to Christmas. So it's pretty amazing. It, uh, it trumps, you know, Thanksgiving. It trumps Easter. It trumps July 4th. Um, and it's not a surprise as you uh, begin to drive around beginning of October. So, you know, over a month ago, uh, things were in the stores already and big, you know, uh, decorations in people's yards and, and things like that. How did that, you know, how did that even, you know, get started? Well, on November 1st, many Catholics celebrate All Saints Day also called All Hallow Day uh, for, for holy or set apart. So All Saints Day, many Catholics celebrate that on November 1st. Um, so the thought was that on the eve, on All Hallows Eve, on the 31st, October 31st, the thought was that the spirits would be more active um, and, and you know, more influential because on the next day prayers would be offered to saints and so the, you know, the spiritual uh, realm was more active on All Hallows' Eve, which later became just called Halloween. And um, therefore, uh, that's believed to probably be the start of kind of what we know. And it's obviously morphed into a lot of different things. Uh, one of the other thoughts of even why people go around and get candy is that uh, historically, historians have said that... Uh, Poor people would go around on All Hallows' Eve, the night before, asking for food in exchange for a promise that they would pray for that family the next day. So they would go around and say, hey, can, could we have some food? Because you know, tomorrow, if you give us food, we will pray for you. Um, and the idea was the more prayers, the less time in purgatory, the more favor you know, with God and so forth. Uh, so perhaps that's why you know, kids now go around and get candy. Uh, there's a lot of different things involved in that. But why am I telling you this? Not just because tomorrow is Halloween, but as believers, we have something to celebrate tomorrow that is far more important than that holiday and that uh, you know, exchange of candy. And it is what happened about 505 years ago when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on October 31st of 1517 on the door of a church in Wittenberg, Germany. We know, now know that that was kind of the beginning of the Reformation, and he nailed those theses as a protest of what he was seeing. He was a, he was a monk uh, within the Catholic Church, but he was beginning to, beginning to understand as he read Scripture for himself and began to understand that there are things that are not matching up. And he, in protest of that, nailed the 95 Theses uh, on the door of the church in Wittenberg, 505 years ago, as of tomorrow. Uh, so as believers, we can celebrate that. that we're very thankful that uh, he had the courage to do something that would later, he would be labeled as a heretic. Uh, less than four years later, there was a death warrant uh, issued for him. And uh, anyone could have killed him. He died a natural death uh, in the end, but uh, he, there was a death warrant put out on his life. He translated the Bible into German because he wanted the people, the common people, to be able to open God's Word, not have to just depend on whatever somebody was saying up front, uh, but be able to open God's Word for themselves. 
And one of the most important truths that was, it didn't come out of the Reformation, but it was re-emphasized. There was a faithful remnant all the way through. So God's word has stayed true. But one of the things that was emphasized once again is that salvation is by grace alone and by faith alone. But it took a lot of courage for uh, Martin Luther to do that and to nail the 95 Theses you know, on, on that door over 500 or just at 505 years ago. Now, as we look at Nehemiah, he was a man of courage. And we looked at last week that forward by faith, leading with courage, and Nehemiah did exactly that, all the way from you know, leaving his position as a cupbearer, going back to Jerusalem, uh, withstanding the, the, the persecution and the, the threats of even all-out war with Sanballat and Tobiah and, and peoples around that area. Fast forward, Nehemiah 1 through 12, and, and uh, Nehemiah has been there serving as, as governor. He goes back to Persia for a time. Then the people of, of Jerusalem, many of them rebel. Many of them in Nehemiah's absence begin to do things that they had made a covenant, even from the verse that we uh, talked through this morning, had even made a covenant of staying firm and uh, being loyal to, to God in all their ways. But many of them begin to fall back. So as Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem, Nehemiah 13, he begins to see everything that's happening and then confront. So last, last week we looked at how he had the courage to confront impure relationships, impure marriage relationships. And uh, it was a question about religion. It wasn't a question about race, but he, he challenged, you know, don't go after the false gods. Don't intermarry with those who are not serving God, Jehovah. He had the courage to confront impure, improper religious relationships. And then also to confront priorities, financial priorities. They had failed to honor God with uh, the portion that was meant for the priests and the Levites. And then even their practical priorities. They were not honoring the Sabbath anymore. But as we look at Nehemiah chapter 13 today, we'll see that he also had the, conf- the, the courage to confront spiritual corruption in general, just widespread spiritual corruption. So I want to start in Nehemiah 13 and verse 28. And he confronted loyalty to a leader over loyalty to the Lord. He had the courage to confront loyalty to a leader over loyalty to the Lord. In Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 28, it says this. And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, notice the high priest. Okay, so... Nehemiah is referencing here the grandson, in in a sense, of Eliashib. So one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. If you recall, Sanballat was not a friend of God and was not a friend of Israel. One of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law now of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, it says, I, Nehemiah, chased him from me. Then verse 29, remember them, oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I establish the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. And as we looked at very clearly last week, once again, as it says here, I cleanse from everything foreign. This is not a a racial issue. 
unfortunately, the nations around Jerusalem were serving false gods. And as they intermarried with uh, those foreign nations, then the Israelites began to do the same. In contrast, we see Ruth, who God used in a phenomenal way to leave uh, her false gods uh, and to follow Naomi and to say, no, your God is going to be my God. We looked at last week how in Ezra, uh, nations, some, some people from nations around them had actually chosen, no, we want God Jehovah to be our God. But as Nehemiah saw, even in these unfaithful leaders, they had loyalty to a leader more so than they did to the Lord. Backing up in the early part of Nehemiah chapter 13, look at verses 4 and 5 once again. We've already seen this, but just to get some context here, we see how this uh, very well easily could have started from Eliashib's bad example of inviting Tobiah into the temple. Now before this, it says in verse 4 of Nehemiah 13, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain. Wine and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. Both Tobiah and Sanballat had been very outspoken enemies of reconstructing the walls, had spoken out against Nehemiah, had tried to manipulate uh, the, the Israelites that were, that were at work, had tried to, to rally up nations around them to even physically attack uh, the Israelites in this project. And yet, there comes a point where Eliashib, the high priest, says, Hey, Tobiah, you want to have an apartment in the temple? I can fix you up. Then, as the passage that we just read, towards the end of Nehemiah 13, Eliashib, his example, now one of his grandsons, marries into Sanballat's family in a, in a direct act of opposition against the God of Israel in all things that were holy. When he says that the priesthood was desecrated, what's the idea behind that? Well, desecrate means to be disrespectful, to show irreverence. And so the covenant that had been given to the priest, and we'll look at this in a little bit, uh, to, to Aaron, a descendant of Levi, that covenant, that responsibility had been desecrated. They had been irreverent to what God had called them to do. I'll give you an idea of maybe... You know, something that'll make sense uh, and be easier to, to see. Imagine with me, if you come to my house, uh, and we've had many of you over, and we love, you know, having, having friends, and we love being in your home. But let's say you come to my house, and I'm about to start a fire in our fireplace. It's getting kind of cold. We've already had several fires in our fireplace. And I take my Bible, and I begin to rip out pages and crumple them up and place them under the wood and, and everybody's watching, you, you're just kind of there, and lunch is getting ready, and I, I'm building a fire, and I'm just ripping, you know, out of the Bible. I would imagine that probably most of you would say, Pastor, what are you doing? Why are you ripping pages out of the Bible to make a fire? So in a sense, I would be acting in an irreverent way to God's Word. I would, I would be uh, acting as if this were just scrap paper that I could crumple up and burn, and yet that's exactly similar to what the leaders should have been the spiritual leaders, but what they were doing here in Nehemiah 13. 
Now, I want to contrast that, that with faithful leaders. Now, I'd like you to leave something in Nehemiah chapter 13 and turn to Malachi chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. Malachi 2, verses 4 through 9. You may be reminded that Malachi served as a prophet uh, during the time of Nehemiah's absence, when Nehemiah you know, served as governor, he was there at least for 12 years, and then he returned to the king as he had promised. Nehemiah chapter 2 indicates that he had said, yeah, I'm going to come back. So he returns to the king of Persia. And during that absence, Malachi, the book of Malachi and all that he proclaims is him serving and relating to the people God's warnings of, as you continue to fall away, these are things that will happen, and these are things where you are totally out of line. So as we use Malachi here as a, as a commentary on some of the things that happened during this, this time that Nehemiah was away, I want to show you an acceptance that the faithful leaders had an acceptance of their purpose. Why did they even exist? Why were they priests? Well, Malachi chapter 2 and verses 4 through 9, Malachi says this, so shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. I hope you're seeing as we read some of the purposes of a biblical priest, of a biblical leader in that time period. He walked with me in peace, the latter part of verse 6, and uprightness. And he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. And people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. And then Malachi brings a contrast and the warning, and he says, But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your, in your instruction. Levi was one of the twelve sons of Jacob, later called Israel. And from that, um, you know, from those 12 sons, we see the 12 tribes of Israel. Levi's descendants then, at the time of Aaron, Moses and Aaron, and some of this we've even been studying about during uh, growth groups, but at one of his descendants, Aaron, was given a covenant. We're going to read some, some verses here in a minute in Numbers of part of the covenant, part of the promise and purpose that God uh, relates specifically to Aaron. So I believe as Malachi is talking about you know, the covenant with Levi and uh, this, this person who was faithful in the instruction is probably a reference to Aaron, the first priest, and maybe even to one of Aaron's, I think it was Aaron's grandson, uh, Phinehas, that was also faithful and, and, and uh, was described as someone who was jealous for God. So you see a huge contrast between the unfaithful leaders and priests in Nehemiah's latter days and what Malachi is warning against to the faithful leaders. Now what about today? The Old Testament, part of the, the main reasons that we study the Old Testament is to see God's hand throughout history. But it's also, as we see in, Saul, in, in the New Testament, uh, one of the purposes is to learn from 
uh, from the evil, learn from the mistakes, to be able to follow God in a, in a righteous way. Ephesians reminds us that the church has been given spiritual leaders. And in a sense, every one of us are, are spiritual leaders in some circle of influence. Let me explain it this way. In our home, I should understand and embrace the role and the responsibility that God has given me to be the spiritual leader of my family. But yet when Michael and Mary come to this school and I'm not with them and they sit at the cafeteria table or they're outside on the playground, then all of a sudden in their circle of influence as a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, they are to be leaders for Jesus Christ and the same is true for you and me. So we should learn from, okay, what is a faithful leader? What are some characteristics of an unfaithful leader? In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, we won't read the whole passage, but we see very clearly that pastors are part of some of the God-given leaders that are supposed to serve the church. Ephesians 4.12 says they are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's one of my primary purposes is to, to train you, to encourage you, to motivate you, to say, hey, go out and do the work of the Lord. This is what God has called us to do, and I want to lead you in that process. The passage states that these leaders should build up the body of Christ so that they would be um, together in unity and that they would become mature men and women in Jesus Christ. And that passage is just one of several that talks about the traits and the characteristics of faithful leaders. Now today, in our modern day, 2022, there are temptations, there are distractions uh, for spiritual leaders, for pastors, for spiritual leaders of homes that would be, you know, the husbands and wives, to be so distracted by maybe uh, chances of popularity, chances of being successful even financially, chances of being very liked, even if that means in compromising what biblical truth is all about. And we see the importance of, boy, we need to be faithful to the purpose that God has called us to. Not be like those who Malachi says, hey, you have turned away. You've desecrated the covenant of the, of the Levites. May God not say of us, boy, you as followers of Jesus Christ, you have desecrated your purpose as believers, as Christians, as little Christ in the communities that he's put you in. You've been irreverent, disrespectful. You've made it unholy. We're to follow him in every way. So we've seen acceptance of their purpose, but we also see for faithful leaders an appreciation for their portion. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 18 and verses 19 through 21. Numbers 18, 19 through 21, and we'll see some of the original things that Aaron, the instructions that Aaron received about being a priest. Numbers 18, verses 19 through 21. All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. I want to pause here just for a second. A little bit of background. 
Um, I know that we have some salt lovers in the congregation today because Matt Johnson is here, and he is, he is a salt lover. Jim has spent the weekend with us, and I, it's become clear that Jim loves salt. I enjoy salt on some of my food. And uh, what, what is a covenant of salt? Well, salt was very valuable uh, in the time of you know, the Old Testament and even into the New we derive from that idea, you know, if somebody's not worth their salt, somebody gets a salary or kind of money to buy salt. Or a covenant of salt, historically, if two people would consume salt at the same time, it was to bind them in an agreement that should not be broken. So it's a phrase that's used here. This is a, this is a serious covenant here. This is a serious promise. It says, you know, the covenant of salt before forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. Then notice verse 20. And the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. Now we can ask Aaron later, but I wonder when Aaron first heard those words, I wonder if Aaron was like, well, what's up with that? How did I lose out on this inheritance? Why, 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 am, you know, why can't we get you know, our own portion But then it goes on to say, I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. To the Levites, I've given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for the service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting. So God was trying to make very clear to Aaron, you know, listen, Aaron, you and your sons specifically uh, are going to serve as priests. The rest of the Levites from the descendant of Levi will serve as Levites and serve in the temple and do other functions. But you and your descendants will be the priests of the nation. You won't have a portion with the rest of Israel. Why? Because I am your portion. So basically God was saying, you have been given the responsibility but also the privilege to serve me in this, in this fashion. And that is more than enough to be the portion for you. Now, Nehemiah's day, as we look at Nehemiah chapter 13, Eliashib and the others, they weren't satisfied enough. So as they became dissatisfied, in a sense, with God's portion, then they began to look to other things, improper relationships, impure marriage relationships, even financial gain. You know, if we, if we can strike a deal, you know, with Tobiah and Sam Ballot, then there's, there's other things that we have to gain from this because they did not accept the portion that God was enough. You know, we aren't, none of us, we are individual priests. We believe in the priesthood of the believer. But I'm not going to call, you know, during fellowship time, I'm not going to go up and say, hey, priest Logan. You know, hey, priest Christina. But I have to wonder, you know, God has said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Second Peter says that we've been given everything that pertains to life and godliness. God says that he is enough. He is our portion. Our citizenship, it doesn't, you know, we're concerned about the elections in Brazil. We're very concerned about the elections in America. But thank God, those are not our primary citizenships. Our primary, primary citizenship is in heaven where we have a God, the king of the universe, who is completely faithful. May we be in acceptance of the portion 
that God has given us and fulfill the purpose that he's called us to. See that then, secondly, he confronted the practice of calling evil good. Malachi, once again, serves as a, as a really important backdrop. So look with me in Malachi chapter 2 and verse 17. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 17. Similar to what has happened and is happening in our nation, there are many who are calling evil good. And they're redefining the terms and they're celebrating. You know, at one point it was to tolerate and for equality and now it's shifted to so much more of, no, this should be celebrated. This should be practiced by all. And Nehemiah and Malachi together, it's like, no, we, we will confront this idea of calling evil good. Notice with me in Malachi chapter 2 and verse 17. It says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? There was a very vivid illustration of this just a few weeks ago. And I want, to understand, I want you to know, before I go into some of these examples, there are many ways that we as the church of Jesus Christ have, even in ways that aren't so obvious, there's many ways that we have called evil good. Sometimes it's by what comes across our screen when we're watching TV. Sometimes it's what we feed ourselves as we're on the internet all the time. And, and it may not be so public, but many times we justify and we begin to say, no, no, this isn't, this isn't quite so bad. And, and in fact, I enjoy that. And we're going to celebrate that. But a couple of weeks ago, there were some obvious, very obvious examples of this during Pride Week here in Atlanta. Atlanta, as a very diverse city in many ways, has also embraced as a city, unfortunately, the idea of celebrating Pride Week. But what's even more disheartening and breaks my heart is to see that many churches have joined in. Several years back, as this was kind of beginning to, to gain steam, I read an article about one of the participants said, you know, that initially it was awkward as they would pass one church who, um, although they loved the Lord and loved um, the people in the LGBT community, they would not celebrate what Pride Week was all about. And so as they walked past that church as part of the parade, there was always some tension. There was always some awkwardness of, you know, uh, this, is, this is weird. But this participant says, but then when St. Mark started handing out water to us, the tone began to drift, to shift dramatically. Suddenly we saw other churches, congregations, and families out there cheering us on. There's a huge difference between saying, hey, Jesus Christ loves you, and I do too, and I want to share with you the redeeming hope of the gospel, than standing in there and say, yes, go, do whatever you want to do. Yes, let's celebrate. Let's join in. There's a huge difference. The North Georgia United Methodist Pride Parade Committee just this year in 2022 says, said this, this is an opportunity to march with other United Methodist churches reconciling communities and individuals in Atlanta's 2022 Pride Parade. Together and in great numbers, we will march to express the love of Christ for all members of the LGBTQ plus community, advocate for equality in all facets of society, and call for full inclusion in the life of the United Methodist Church. That's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. That is calling evil good. 
Atlanta First UMC, their, their slogan is, Love first and everything else follows. And they had, even on Facebook, you know, posts of individuals participating in this. And it says, Join Atlanta First UMC in celebrating 175 years of love in the city during Atlanta Pride on Sunday, October 9th. Oakhurst Baptist Church a few years ago says this, Our witness to the crowd is certainly meaningful for both our groups and those in the crowd who see a Baptist church which is both welcoming and affirming. That's the difference. That is calling evil good. The All Saints Episcopal Church of Atlanta had this. Integrity Atlanta and the Commission on LGBTQ plus Ministry of the Episcopal Diocese of Atlanta will sponsor the 32nd Annual Pride Eucharist. The Diocese of Atlanta is an official sponsor of Pride. Glen Memorial Chapel, an LGBTQ plus group, held a drag show within the church building. So th- these aren't things that we look back, you know, in the Old, Old Testament times and look at Nehemiah 13 and go, wow, you know, what corruption. These aren't things that we look back and think, well, you know, the Corinthian church and things that they tolerated in that time period, how sinful, you know, the, Corinth- the Corinthians were in that, the city of Corinth. No, this is our day. This is our time period. And it can be so, so easy to become so uh, comfortable and so it's so normalized. That even as believers, we can be tempted to say, okay, maybe it's not so bad. And then eventually begin to celebrate it. Begin to march together. Just a few weeks ago, watching a little show, a little Disney show that's a pretty cute show, actually, about a hockey team. And within the show, you know, one of the kids, you know, pipes up and says, hey, yes. You know, well, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. I've got two moms. And in one of the other episodes, it kind of... It kind of emphasizes what a beautiful family he has and how loving you know, they are to him. Calling evil good. And we've talked a lot, and this is something we cover on Wednesday nights, and responding to today's cultural issues, you know, lest you forget, and some aren't there on Wednesday nights, I want you to, to be reminded, we do not advocate for hate. We do not advocate for violence. We advocate for following Christ, doing it in a lovingly way, but a firm in, in, in a way that honors the convictions of God's word so that we will not call evil good. He also had the courage to confront the celebration of worldliness and arrogance. Once again in Malachi, now chapter 3, verses 13, 13 through 15, it says, Your words have been hard against me, Malachi three thirteen says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evil doers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So Malachi is confronting here an idea of, of worldliness and arrogance. An idea where Israelites were beginning to say, you know, what's, what's the use? What, what do we have to profit from this, you know, of, of mourning our sins? And, and then, you know, what's the use of that? 
And then begin to, they begin to celebrate and lift up those who were arrogantly acting in the face of God's guidelines and his way. There's an interesting psalm of Asaph that maybe reflects some of the temptations that we all encounter at one point or another. Turn with me to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. I praise the Lord that God in his sovereignty and in his love did not only lead the writers of Scripture to talk about the good things they did, to talk about only the high and lofty religious thoughts and God-focused thoughts that they had, but he also led the the, the scriptural writers to include some things that they questioned at times, difficulties that they encountered doubts that they have. And this is exactly what we see with Asaph in Psalm 73. First of all, we see in this psalm a, a, the huge pull of the world, the huge attraction, the huge temptation to, you know, to join in and to be a part. In a humorous way, I saw a little bit of a glimpse of you know, the, the, the draw of something just a few weeks ago that the group was here from Bob Jones, and uh, there was one young man named Stephen who loved soccer. But he had, he had injured himself a little bit before the trip. And so while he was here, he really wasn't supposed to like run and jump and, and do things, but he loved soccer so much that when we were at Piedmont Park with the group, we had some soccer balls and other things, and we were sitting there eating lunch, and, and there was a soccer ball over there on the, on the you know, blanket. I think Audrey had the soccer ball by her, and Stephen says, oh, it's calling my name. That ball is just like, it's calling my name. And he, would, he started to inch over, and we're like, Stephen, don't do it. You're going to regret it. You're going to hurt yourself even more. He says, oh, but I just can't. I cannot resist. You gotta. So he said, hide the ball. Hide the soccer ball from Stephen. The pull was so strong. I mean, you could visibly see him fighting like, I'm injured, but yet I want to play. I want to kick the ball. And there may be some things like that, you know, for you that you know it's probably not the best for you at that time, but you're, you're, you're drawn to that. Asaph shows here that there is a pull of the world to him. Notice with me in Psalm 73, verse 1. Or verse, they'll start in verse 2, actually. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. Now, Asaph, you may, be, you may remember, he was the leader of a choir. So this was a godly man. But he says, he says but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I would venture to say that each one of you, together with me, at some point in our life, we've looked at some of those who are arrogant around us in the world and their prosperity, and we've begun to think, huh, God sure would be nice. Seems like they have a pretty easy life. What about me, Lord? Still still here. I would really enjoy that type of life. Years ago, there was the show, you know, uh, The Lives of the Rich and Famous, if anybody remembers that. And they would show the yachts, and they would show the homes, and all these, you know, cool things. And it was like, yeah, that, that, that would be really cool. So Asaph is saying, listen, my feet had almost stumbled. I, I had nearly slipped because I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
Notice his perspective, Asaph's perspective. It was false, but this is what he thought. For they have no pangs until death. In essence, he's looking at those who are prosperous around him. They're, they're wicked. They're not serving God, Jehovah. But he's saying, they don't, they don't have any pain. There's no difficulties that they face. For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Now, I didn't do a, a really deep word study, but I didn't quite understand that fat and sleek. But, I mean, it may be different in your version. In general, I think it's just saying they were well-fed. They weren't having to worry about the next meal. I mean, they, they, they had everything that they wanted, and they were well-fed. Verse 5, they're not in trouble, as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. There's evil thoughts and evil intentions. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily or, or arrogantly, they threaten oppression. So you can see how some you know, manipulation is used by this group. They set their mouths, how? Against the heavens. And their tongue struts through the earth. I, I, I think that was an interesting word picture. You know, their tongue struts through the earth, kind of arrogantly. I always get a kick out of sometimes, you know, watching um, sports events, and sometimes you'll see athletes, and they think they are God's gift to the world, and just the way they, man, they strut about, and very quickly, God can remind us, no, you're not such big stuff. But yet we see their, th- their tongue stretched through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. The Christian Standard Bible has that last phrase as drink in their overflowing words. And they say, verse 11, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? You know, is God really going to do anything about this? Is he even watching? Verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. So in verse 13, you see again the pull of the world on Asaph. All in vain I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. So this first part of Psalm 73, Asaph is at a crossroad. And he's beginning to look, and he's, he's taking his focus off of God. And he's beginning to look at the wicked and the prosperous. And he says, that looks pretty attractive. I, I really wouldn't mind going down that path. And when I'm, when I'm trying to understand this, it's wearisome, Asaph says. But notice the next verse, which is the hinge of this passage. It says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. So he, his foot had almost slipped, and he was almost beginning to say, yeah, I think that is the better path. But then he goes into the sanctuary of God, and then he begins to understand their ends. That's what we see next is the power of God in Psalm 73 and verse 18. Asaph now says, truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. 
Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. You know, we as humans, we forget so quickly that it would be easy for each one of us to be able to say, yeah, I remember such and such a person that was famous, was rich, was talented, was strong, maybe was beautiful, did this, did that, but it didn't lead to satisfaction, and their life ended this way. For some, it's suicide. For some, it's, it's broken family relationships. We see that happening right now probably with Tom Brady and his wife. A very, very talented man. But yet it looks like he's going to lose family. And sometimes it's easy for go, boy, I, man, I wouldn't mind being 40-something and playing like that. But that's not all of what life's about. We see then the power of God that he is sovereign. He is in control. And we don't need to worry about what it appears that other people may be living. God's way is still and will always be the best way. That shouldn't give us the attitude of, oh, I'm so much smarter. Now, you know, you, you're such a foolish person. But it should motivate us to, to, even if someone is successful, even if someone has the nice cars and the nice house and all the money and all the nice clothes, even then to say, listen, but you still lack something, and that is Jesus Christ. That is the hope that will never falter. That is the hope that will take you way past your lifetime of 80, 90, 100, you know, max years on earth. We see the power of God at stake. And then lastly, we see in Psalm 73, the process of growth. Asaph recognizes foolishness in verse 21. It says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Those are pretty, you know, uh, powerful words. Asaph is saying, listen, in the way that I was thinking... As I was standing at that crossroad and I began to be distracted and began to be convinced that maybe that was the better way, really, God, I was, I was acting in such ignorance and I was acting like a beast, really, towards you. Then next we see that Asaph praises God for his faithfulness in verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. So before he had said, you know, as he looked at the wicked and the prosperous, boy, they have no pain until death. But now as he's beginning to grow once again, he's saying, God, you hold my hand. He says, you guide me, verse 24, with your counsel. And afterward, so now his perspective has changed. It's not just the here and now. It's not just what I, what I have before me. But it says, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. That, that's the promise we have. That's the blessed hope. That's the eternal citizenship. That's why we, we should not get distracted with the things of the world. And then lastly, in Psalm 73, we see that Asaph strengthens his faith. Verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. What a contrast from the first part of Psalm to now. And we see Asaph who has grown in his faith and now he says, boy, there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. And I, I want to challenge you and I'm challenging myself. That is hard to live out. 
It's easy to say, it's easy to say, wow, bless God, Asaph, amen. But boy, that's hard to live out as we face constantly the temptations of the world, of success, of popularity, of comfort, of leisure, all of those things. And as with Asaph, be able to say, but there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. Even through the hardships we face, even, even physical hardships that we face, we can say God is the strength of my heart. And then notice this, in my portion forever. In my portion forever. His portion is enough. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Nehemiah, Malachi, Asaph, they've all come to the conclusion, yes, there's things that that may be tempting, there's, there's ways that are certainly against God, but in the end, God's way is best. And may we have the courage to move forward by faith as Asaph finishes here so that we can tell of all of God's good works. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we pray this morning?